0: and to Let's Face It. I am your host, Will Strayhorn. Thanks for joining me. Again in the studio tonight with me, I have my special guest co-host, Miss Kimberly Pitts. How are you, Kim?
1: Hello. I'm doing well. And yourself?
0: I'm doing really good. How was your holiday?
1: It was was okay. Um, I decided to stay home um, after not traveling out to another state. I just, uh, I changed my mind, so I decided to stay home. So it was, peaceful, and serene? Mm, did you
0: go out Black, shop, black Friday shopping?
1: No. <laughs> you didn't? No. Me. No. Me how How was your holiday?
0: It was good. We did go home to North Carolina, as I told you. Um, it was the one-year um, anniversary of my grandmother's passing, so um, I thought it was going to be a little gloomy, but it actually was one of my best visits down in North Carolina. I really got to bond with family, especially with my immediate family. Um, So everything was really good. We didn't go out shopping or anything like that, um, but we really spent some good quality family time, and and I think that's that's really what the holiday was about. So um, we have an awesome dynamic show. We have been working on this show all week, um, tirelessly. So why don't you tell us about the show?
1: Okay, well, in light of the recent events in Ferguson regarding the verdict assigned to the Michael Brown case, This show is dedicated to race and race relations in the United States. So tonight we have four dynamic community and education leaders. They are Dr. Terrell L. Strayhorn, Dr. Mary Beth Gassman, Dr. Antipas L. Harris, Mr. Glenn Barker. So get ready for an evening of discussion, insight, and deep introspection. So after this commercial break, Will and I will be joined by our guests. You're listening to Let's Face It on the Survival Radio Network, and I'm your co-host, Kimberly Pitts, and we will be right back.
0: Right back.
2: Cafe atlanta where desserts are created and you taste love looking to fill your sweet tooth do you have a special event or occasion you're planning give cake cafe atlanta a call located at 368 candler road atlanta georgia 30317 open monday to saturday 10 to 7 p.m. you can get the best in pies cakes cobblers coffee brownies specialty popcorn and more visit their website at www.CakeCafeAtlanta.com or give them a call at 404-284-0106. That's 404-284-0106. Call Cake Cafe Atlanta today.
3: Looking for a cafe with a home-like appeal where all who enter part of something? Visit My Coffee Shop, located in East Lake Atlanta, Georgia, MCS has a full breakfast and lunch menu, offering both hot and cold options, and is home of the amazing basil lemonade. But don't forget their assortment of freshly brewed coffees. Come on by at 2462 Memorial Drive, Atlanta, Georgia, 30317. We're pretty sure my coffee shop at East Lake will become your coffee shop, too.
4: Do you want to take your business to the next level ultimate business solutions provides the support you need to increase your customer base and sell more products and services online specializing in graphic arts web development and internet marketing ultimate business solutions creates the face of your business if you're looking for a custom logo dynamic website or popping marketing material call ultimate business solutions today at 404-704-2197 or visit www.ultimatebizsolutions.com ultimate business solutions let us create your future
5: Services consulting firm located in Washington, D.C., Largo, Maryland, and Jacksonville, Florida. We are comprised of highly experienced, certified security professionals as well as subject matter experts in the science of information security and privacy. Lanier has established a solid reputation for excellence by providing superior services to every client. This credible firm brings a wealth and expertise to the profession. If you are interested in challenging work, excellent compensation, contracts, Visit Lanier Data Assurance Solutions today. Like us on Facebook to get real-time opportunity announcements at Facebook.
0: To Let's Face It. I am your host, Will Strayhorn, and we also have my co host, Miss Kimberly Pitts. Again, tonight's show is all about Ferguson and how race and race relations are playing a part in the United States today. Um, The recent disclosure of the grand jury's decision not to indict former officer, because he recently retired, Darren Wilson, and the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri really offered to many of us in the country zero surprise. But the effects that the case and so many others that are in the news lately um, have played in race and racial relations in the country are really overwhelming. So my guests tonight are here to offer insight on what went wrong, what can be done, and how do we move forward. So we have, I'm going to introduce them one by one, Dr. Mary Beth Gasman Dr. Terrell Strayhorn, Dr. Antipas Harris, and Mr. Glenn Barker. Welcome to the show, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Can each of you, beginning with Mary Beth, can you briefly introduce yourself and give us your credentials um, so that our listeners will know?
2: Sure. I'm happy to do that. Um, I'm Mary Beth. I'm a professor at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia and I also uh, serve as the director of the Penn Center for Minority-Serving Institutions. Uh, I spend a lot of time speaking out on issues related to race uh, in America, and I do that based on um, my um, training as a historian, uh, but also just my uh, ability to uh, take a look at what's going on in society, I would say.
0: Okay. And True?
3: Hi, I'm Terrell Strayhorn, professor of higher education at The Ohio State University, where I also direct the Center for Higher Education Enterprise, and I spend a good deal of time through my research looking at issues of student success, but specifically um, through a lens that focuses on the experiences of historically underrepresented minorities and have spent a good deal of time the past couple of years trying to focus on the condition of black men in higher education.
2: Okay.
4: Glenn? Glenn Barker here from the Mankind Project out of Chicago. I'm the executive director of the largest uh, center in the Mankind Global Network of uh, 32 worldwide centers. And um, I get to live my mission every day. Uh, the purpose here is to create a safer world by growing better men. And we do this by training and supporting men in circles. And I get to live that mission every day. Thank you for having me.
0: You're welcome. You're welcome. And last but not least,
6: Antipas. Hi, uh, Dr. Antipas Harris here I'm from Regent University. I am a an associate professor in the School of uh, Divinity, and uh, I also direct the Center for Youth and Urban Renewal. I have a strong interest in the cross-section of uh, faith and community or church and society, so uh, I am very happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: You're welcome. You're welcome. So before we really get into the interview, um, as I said in the introduction, very few people were surprised at the um, grand jury deciding not to indict um, Officer um, Darren Wilson.
4: But I want to know from
0: each of you, what was your response when you heard the verdict? And you can just speak at will.
4: Glenn Barker here. Uh, I was deeply affected. Uh, this brought to me a combination of great sadness and inspiration. The sadness I experiences is around the wounds and the woundings that keep continuing, uh, the deepening tension between us as people, as individuals. Uh, this tears at our connection from each other and as a people. The Inspiration comes in the form of being hopeful, because I see some great good that could come from these wounds when it's moved into a call for action. So I choose to see this as a catalyst uh, for bonding in place of division. And my ask is to let us be mindful uh, of ourselves and individual choices, and let's make partnerships join organizations who deeply care and become agents for change.
2: Wonderful. Next. Um, this is Mary Beth. Uh, I guess there. I had a, a number of feelings. One, I felt very, very sad that um, young black men uh, uh, got the message that they had, uh, that, that they did about their lives not being valued. And I watched many, many people try to give them an alternative message. And I myself also made sure that, you know, I posted on social media that I value black lives um, no matter what a grand jury thinks. Um, I also, uh, and lots of people who know me um, have heard me talk about my father and uh, I I thought about my dad because I grew up in a home with an ardent racist who um, was one of the, was like the people who, uh, would probably be cheering that the police officer was let was was let off. Um, my father would have been one of those people who was cheering, and it made me think that you know not that much has changed in certain parts of the country and in certain people's minds about uh, how they view African Americans in the United States, and and that also made me very sad. But I but I will have to say that like Glenn, I um, the first thing I try to think about is. How can we make this better? How can we um take all of the people who actually do feel like um black lives matter and bring them together and I think there are lots of people who are who are not necessarily black who also feel that black lives matter and how do you bring them together and how do you how do you get people to pull everything they have? Uh, together to um, change what's going on in society. And that's really, I think, the only way that we can make that happen. I mean, throughout history, what we know is that um, when people came together, they were more successful. I I don't know if you guys saw the trailer yet for the film Selma that's coming out, but it's a beautiful reminder. It's a beautiful reminder, even the trailer, of how people of all different religions and racial and ethnic backgrounds and ages and uh came together around a common cause uh mm-hmm. and i i think that this is an opportunity for people to do that we just have to be brave enough to step up and there are many people who aren't brave enough and uh we need we need more brave people
6: awesome next uh Paul is- harris here i i have to say that um uh, when i heard the verdict uh or the um decision from the grand jury um not that it was something that i didn't expect but um i thought i'd brace myself to hear what i heard but when i heard it i felt a deep sea uh, sense of grief um frustration uh i felt the connection with the people who were frustrated than eric ferguson uh it brought up a lot of my own issues and and uh, experiences over the years and some, also, some uh, concerns I've had about the justice system for a long time. Uh, so it was one, it was very personal. I took it very personally, and mm-hmm. uh, it took me a moment to sort of distance my um, personal emotion from a rational way of thinking about things.
0: And Terrell,
3: yeah. So I felt many of the emotions that other Uh, other panelists or speakers have said, but I think the moment I heard the decision most immediately, I felt unsafe and unprotected as an African-American male myself, who not only, you know, does the work around race relations, but lives in this country. And that was the hardest emotion to shake. Like, Glenn and and Antipas and um, Mary Beth, I felt disappointed with the decision. I felt um, that, you know, as a a law school student, I couldn't understand how one comes to this decision rationally or even legally with the sort of weight of evidence that would suggest a different course of action. So I was disappointed and confused, but I think at the end of the day, while I still harbor some feelings of feeling unsafe or unprotected, I am profoundly inspired by it because I think that it's moved me to a deeper commitment to the kind of conversations we're having tonight, the kind of work we're doing to act, to challenge, to fight back, Um, and not to fight back through violence, but to fight back through social justice kind of work. The research that we're doing is that much more important to me because I think at the end of the day, we're trying to, um not only prevent instances like this from happening but to in um to educate others about the value of life and the value of diversity and um that differences aren't uh, deficits, they're not bad things. They make us as a country stronger and therefore Mike Brown's life is equally as important to anyone else's.
0: Hmm. Well said, well said, and Kim
1: well, um, just listening to everyone's um response, you know, I think that it's kind of um sad that um you know we we as a people were not surprised by by the verdict, and um, I think that you know in a sense, we have become sort of like um you know, I guess, like, desensitized, um, Mm -hmm. you know, a bit. And I think that um, that's that's basically unfortunate because that speaks to how, you know, black people in general, especially black males, are treated. Um, But this this leads me to the next question, and this is for everyone. Uh, In your opinion what are the core issues surrounding what happened in Ferguson? Like, you know, do you feel like it's solely about race? Or do you feel like there's like an underlying core issue, like another core issue? And how do you guys think that we can deal with with that? Like, you know, what what, what can we do?
4: Well, Glenn Barker here, maybe we'll take the same order. Uh, I hope... Our listeners, and I'll take it that our friends on the panel here, will see this as an invitation to care. So for me, that's what this is, an invitation for all of us to care. You know, every painful time, there will be people who care, right? And my hope is that we've reached a tipping point for those who care. So I encourage everybody to become a participant, where something beautiful could come from an act like this in the circle of us and our listeners. So, this is an ordeal. So, my ask would be, what is your calling? The question is, are you hearing the call to do something great for connection or for division?
2: Mm.
4: Every tension is a call for people to care and to be and do better. So, we can all do our part in the call for a movement. Enough individuals who care, enough who take action, and enough who stand together. That's what makes a difference.
2: Thank you. Um yeah thank, thanks, Glenn. This is very bash. um, I do think that there are a number of issues involved. I think one of them is that um to me, this is undeniably about race and the value of of uh, different individuals in in American society um I think just I think there are people who value certain people more um you know I, I personally don't live my life that way. I don't teach my child to live her life that way. But unfortunately, there are people who do. And from my own experience with my father, it took a friendship with someone who was different than him, someone who was African-American because I grew up in an all-white rural farm community in Michigan. And and it took him actually moving out of that community and meeting someone and talking with them and realizing how much he had in common with another person to uh, move beyond the prejudice and hatred that he had had, and I, and I think that for all of us, and I mean all of us, um, not not just white people, I think everyone, this is really important, um, I think we all need to push ourselves beyond our comfort zone. We all need to learn to understand each other more. Um, we need to learn to listen more, and I think in this p- specific case, um, um, th- something happened that didn't need to happen because you have someone jumping to conclusions, and all too often people jump to those much more often when someone is African-American, especially African-American male. Um, so I think that that's one of the big issues. You know, race is definitely an issue. I like what Glenn said. I think it's really, really important that we come together and that we, um, you know, I'm always going to be about that. I'm always going to be about trying to bring people together because I, I uh, witnessed a wonderful, wonderful example of my father changing his whole perspective um, based on a coming together. And then the other thing I think this is about is the power of um of uh, democracy. So uh, the fact that the that so few so few people uh, in Ferguson uh were in the people in in positions of power were not representative of the people in Ferguson and I know that oftentimes people uh, roll their eyes about the power of voting, but the power of voting is incredibly important. And whenever I see yeah. people roll their eyes about the power of voting, I'm really saddened just given the history of the country and how people fought of all different backgrounds so much for, for the vote. And so I think this is an instance where the power of voting is incredibly important, and I don't want us to lose sight of that.
6: Wonderful. I think that uh, we're living through, uh, as we all uh, agree, um, a crisis in the country, and a crisis means a point, uh, a point of, of um, determination, a point of uh, conflict, a point where a decision uh, has to be made, and that decision has to be made on all of our parts. Will we continue down the road that we're going? will we take radical measures to address radical times and by radical i do not mean violent i mean radical by radical i mean to be taken seriously and to and 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 take responsibility uh, for the state that our country is in Uh, it's easy to point fingers and there are a lot of fingers to be pointed but the question becomes at the end of pointing, how do we move forward? And I think that uh, we all have to come to, but they had a thing down in in response to the apartheid in South Africa called truth and reconciliation. Mm
0: -hmm.
6: And uh, I think that Mm -hmm. we we need something like that. We need to face the truth. Actually, too many of us are uh, sort of, not accepting the truth, evading the truth, mm-hmm. and I think when we talk about racial issues this this is often the case um and I think that we need to come to a place where it's not an individual usually if i say if I speak of racism, it sounds like I'm talking about a person, and you know if i say if I say a person is racist, I'm not racist and 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 it becomes a a personal attack and a personal discussion rather mm-hmm. than a systemic discussion. Uh, and it, what I like to say, it's an ideological discussion, because with any culture and any ethnic group comes ideologies because that are, that are born out of ex- shared experiences and cultural practices and um, and traditions. So those are the issues, I think, that need to be brought to the forefront. And mm-hmm. as we move towards 2050, um, the minority groups are going to be the majority in this country. And so as we move forward, we're not this is not going to go away. It's only gonna keep coming back until we have a sit down discussion and really understand what the issues are. Hmm.
0: Okay, let me take up before you speak, um, we have a caller who has a comment regarding something that was said. We have Keisha from the media calling in from Pennsylvania. Welcome to the show, Keisha.
2: Hi. Thank you for having me. I uh, wanted to respond when one of the panelists asked what they feel is a core issue surrounding Ferguson and what we're discussing tonight. and. Aside from race, um, I'm a police officer. I've been a police officer for 15 years. I actually served as a sergeant in Southeastern Pennsylvania and Urban Police Department. And uh, from my perspective, uh, race absolutely is a major factor. And in, in coupled with race, and um, in my opinion, even uh, more prevalent is the lack of training in our police departments. Um And, the you know, when you consider the use of force and the force continuum and how that really didn't come out in the questioning of how Darren Wilson decided to use lethal force against Michael Brown. And I've sat on several interview panels in my career where I'm interviewing potential new hires. And one of the things that's very startling is that most of these Uh, new applicants, potential new hire, are recent graduates of the police academy, or have several years of experience. And one of the main questions that we often ask is, what allows you in the state, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, to utilize that resource? And the variance of answers is, is very troubling. There's oftentimes not a real understanding a when deadly force can be used in the commonwealth. And these are, you know, we have a lot of people who are graduating from police academies where you send yourself to the police academy. Uh, your only barrier to entry is 1500 to $3,000, an application fee, and being able to uh, complete a physical agility that basically consists of a one-and-a-half-mile run, and uh, and you're able to get on the police force after completing this, you know, very short Course of training, and, and so I think training is a big issue when it comes to our police forces, and uh, and I and I would like to see how we can collectively address that. Okay,
0: so to my panel, do you have any remarks to her statement?
4: Glenn Barker here, and yes, there um, there is an incumbent, I believe, responsibility of our institutions, all of our institutions, to become culturally sensitive. Uh, to understand their isms and isms and uh, issues around race, around gender, around socioeconomics. Uh, this is woefully absent in much of our teaching and is long overdue. Uh, our group, the Mankind Project, provides men's groups, for instance, that go directly at those issues on an individual basis so that our men sit together and we get to take the lid off of those things to open up, to own our prejudice, to own our isms, to own our rage, our anger, and our passivity. And we settle these things between ourselves as men, so I believe this takes the pressure off, allows me and the men in our circles to show up in the world being more generative, more understanding, and more compassionate, and yet very strong indeed. So I would offer to any organization that's waiting for that to happen uh, to connect with a group like ours, the Mankind Project. We already provide the services for 700 men's groups, uh, 50,000 men are participating. Uh, we invite you to invite yourselves to connect, and we can provide that in your community, in your organization. And so that's the invitation from me, officer. Thank
2: Thanks. you. I appreciate that. I definitely believe that cultural sensitivity is an important part of uh, training that's absent and in a way that police officers are willing to consume it because, you know, when you're dealing with uh folks in law enforcement you're often you're oftentimes dealing with a cynical bunch and uh that information has to be delivered in a way that you can actually convey the importance of it. So I accept that offer. Thank you and I will look to connect with you offline.
4: Very good thank
0: you. Thank you. So um real, I'm sorry for the interruption. You were gonna speak on some things that you feel are issues.
3: Yeah, um so I think some things I would add to our discussion would be that I clearly and undoubtedly I hope no one can listen to the um, the facts of the case or any of the events that have taken place over the past couple of days and come to a conclusion that this is not about race and that it doesn't tell us much about race relations in our country. But I think also embedded within the um, the case itself, the verdict that followed afterwards, the resignation that follows are also um important issues and lessons around um masculinity, as Glenn mentioned earlier, and stereotype expectations of black males and how the those expectations how those stereotype expectations shape um people's psyche, their mind, their thinking about the value and worth of Individuals, and I think that's much of what was embedded in um, the comment from the officer. And I think that those stereotyped expectations can change, likely through interventions like the Mankind Project and interventions that we've had in education for a long period of time. But even after those um, interventions, I think there's still some other issues. The, you know, right now, if you keep up with the media, there's a lot of messaging coming out about Mike Brown and his. Uh, criminal history, and some people would be surprised, and some people might say they're disappointed. But in fact, that is an age-old tactic um, that we have allowed society to use to demonize, disproportionately demonize black males. Um, Mm -hmm. And the strategy is simple, and that is to reduce or to conceal the humanity of the individual, because once someone sees someone as humane and human... It's impossible, it's much more difficult to um, dismiss the worth of their life. But if you can ever make them into demons, um, something not human, then we right. lose our sensitivities about mm-hmm. their lives. And I think that what I hear as the deeper issues, not just race, not just social class, not just masculine, there are deeper issues embedded in this, and there are questions, a crisis of um, democracy, and what kind of democracy do we want to have and build, and um, who's free and who has rights, and are they equal rights for all or just for some, and under what conditions, as well as a crisis of authority. And that is not just what are the sort of implicit bias that shape police officers' minds, but what is it that police officers should be thinking about in terms of how to appropriately use the authority that we've given them as police officers. And then finally, a crisis of community, and that is, um, what is it that that holds us together with for all of our differences? What are our commonalities and how can we um use the ethic of care that Glenn talked about to make sure that we have sustainable neighborhoods where young people feel safe? There's this picture popping all around social media right now of a young man who's holding a sign about free hugs and he's crying yeah. his eyeballs as the officer gives him hugs and you know, I saw that picture and I myself was moved to emotion very quickly because that is a young black male somewhere in this country who is brought to tears about this ordeal or this situation. And what it signals to me is a sense of community that's absent, that he doesn't feel respected, a part of. He doesn't feel like he belongs. And I think that is a deeper issue that we've got to deal with.
6: Yeah, um, Can I uh, respond to uh, Dr. Strayhorn? I think you made a great point uh, when you talked about how if you paint Mike Brown's past um, in a way to frame him or to demonize him, then it will legitimize what uh, their Officer Wilson did. Uh, great point. I think that even when the prosecutor um, made the announcement, he framed the facts or alleged facts, and uh in such a way that it also implied the demonization of Mike Brown to win over the popular opinion pertaining to the situation if you notice he um he framed the story the issue the issue is the killing of Mike Brown but he talked about the uh strong robbing strong, strong arming um at the store and then he even talked about how uh, officer wilson said you know, oh, he looked like a demon coming at me. All that kind of language was such a, you know, I thought, what, what does a demon look like? You know, that kind of um, that kind of language itself was very revealing in the way that people uh, view young as an African-American man. I remember my brothers and I parenthetically were in two different states, once in Kentucky and once in uh, Florida. And we were we were all educated, and um, and we were traveling singing. We were in the entertainment industry at the time. And um, we were early in the morning going into two stores two, at two different times. And uh, in both cases, um, we were told that we could all come in there at the same time. Um, and so I thought, why? You know, what's the problem? You know, and, and you can't help but feel that you are perceived in a way that you really are not,
0: mm-hmm. and
6: um, and and lots of African American young men feel that way. Having been a chaplain in the prisons, uh, been a pastor, been worked with gangs, I know the inner logic at work here. That a lot of African Americans feel that we're perceived in such a way that if we be our authentic selves, it would be demonized. And it has to do with the way we talk, use our hands, you know, just the way we interact in the community. It's this social oppression that I think was revealed in the way that he was characterized in the report from the uh, um, prosecutor. And if you frame it in such a way, it communicates this person deserves what they got, which in itself is the, is the, Even in a situation where it was quite clear seemingly from the beginning that um, Mike Brown was unarmed because of the alleged uh, interaction in the car. And then the whole, I mean, Darren Wilson, Wilson even admitted that he said, I'll shoot. So even that language didn't sound very professional. To me, it communicated counter-bullying he felt that he was being bullied and in his position of power he counter bullied in a way that was uh, and, and in the end he got scotch free on it and I think that's problematic.
2: I this is Mary Beth. What what I was going to say is and I agree with uh, everything that was just said, I I think that by using the word demon, uh it's a way to conjure up all of the prejudice and the negative kinds of ideas, especially uh among among whites right that that they have um of, about african Americans and especially black men um and i'm I'm completely with Terrell in that these are the kind the destroying of people's uh of people as human uh these are the kinds of things that historically have been used over and over and over to denigrate black men and uh and to make them seem demonic to people and so i think they the, they played on every kind of stereotype that they could um and and i i believe and i think this is what i heard um, t- people saying is i believe that was done on purpose it's a way to just rip the humanity away from michael brown um and and have us all forget that he was a high school student right i mean i think that uh we, we just ripped the humanity completely away from him as if he uh he, he didn't deserve to live and and uh that's that's what I thought when I heard the use of the of the word of the word demon. It was a it was a way to uh legitimize his death and uh right. I, I find it really, really troubling. Really troubling.
0: Um Going back to what Terrell said, Terrell had mentioned um, that there has to be a sense of community. I'm sure that we can all agree that in order for a change to occur, we can't depend on the government. We can't depend on the police departments to make reform. Um, it's going to have to be a collective effort, and it's going to have to be from the community. Um, coincidentally, this year marks the 50th anniversary for the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Back in those days when people protested, it was for a reason, it was for a movement. Um, in your opinion, I'm asking, the acts of anger and passion that followed the grand jury decision. Do you believe now that they will finally result in a movement, as such, back in the '60s, or do you believe this is another moment?
6: I think it's very difficult to simply say, oh, this is the same thing like what happened in the '60s. I think uh, that the visual appears to be this similar to the visual that at least I've seen. I wasn't. Um born in those days <laughs> but um it, but I think we have to take this situation for what it is while it does have some resonance of his, some historical resonance um i think um that uh, what what we have here is um i think it's a it's a different character that we have here
0: um
6: and it makes it no less important. But I don't think it's it's exactly the same. What what do you, I would be interested in hearing what others have to say about that. I,
2: I don't I don't think Go it's ahead. exactly the same either. Um I think there I've been thinking a lot about this just um having written a lot about this time period and, and there are a variety of different things at play, right? Um people have access to different things that they didn't have before. Um some people have access, other people don't have access. Technology is on fire, uh, and so messages can be transferred much more quickly. Um, Messages can also be transferred in ways that are um, not not accurate or that um, are baiting various people, right? That um, that are trying to uh, uh, are, are incendiary, and so I think that. There's, there's all these kinds of things. The, the political machine is much, much more volatile because of all the technology. And, uh, but on the other hand, the technology helps us to connect people all across the United States much more quickly. Um, we, there are many, many examples of how social media has been used to make pretty considerable change either at the institutional level, within cities, to galvanize people. So I think there's a lot that can be done there. You just, I guess the biggest thing for me is I feel like people are looking for a leader and that they don't have a leader and that you have Hmm. a a variety of different people who are speaking out. Um, Some of them are, are speaking out in ways that I'm not comfortable with. Others are speaking out in ways I think are for a different time and not this time right now. Um, I think there are some really interesting ones, especially young people speaking out. But I feel like people are looking for a leader, someone who will take a risk, and then they'll feel comfortable taking a risk. And in many ways, someone like Martin Luther King enabled people to do that, even though not everybody followed him and lots of people didn't like him and many people didn't support him and he wasn't a hero to everybody, and I'm I'm not – you know, I'm, I'm talking within the African-American community in particular. Mm-hmm. I think people are looking for a leader and have been looking and and don't necessarily um, aren't, aren't grabbing hold of anyone. Um, I'm not necessarily seeing anyone step up in particular. Um, I see lots of different people who have stepped up before, but no one in particular. I don't think the person can be white, although I do think the person can be white in terms of changing the white population and i think mm-hmm. white people need to do that and you know i that's why i continue to speak out i i wrote an essay called dear white Folk. i i think that as white people we need to handle our business and and stop white people from having and holding these really racist views and and um, perpetuating a system that is inherently racist and so i think white people need to do that but i I also, I think people are looking for a leader. I may be crazy, but I feel like people are looking for someone to step out that they can get behind. Because it's Hmm. scary. There people, I think people are afraid. There's a lot to risk, and I think people are afraid.
5: I have a question. I can say
2: say that because, um, you know, I speak out and people say the nastiest things to me,
5: white people. mm -hmm.
2: I mean, they threaten me. They um, I like I've had I've had hundreds of threats, so I I think people are afraid. I think they're afraid.
1: Um, I have a question um for you. Um, what are your thoughts um, about the connections that can be made between the past and the present? Like you know, given this particular situation, what do you think
2: that that the
1: connections are? And this is for Mary Beth. Oh um, well.
2: One of the things that I did over the past few days is I went back and I looked at a lot of kind of the key themes um from you know the the um, um civil rights movement and uh the freedom movement i I tried to look and see well what are the key themes right and and mm-hmm. one of them is that you need to convince people that they should be they should stand up for something larger than themselves. This is something I'm constantly telling my students occasionally they do it occasionally they don't. So i but, but you have to convince people that that it's it's worthwhile and and there aren't there are aren't that many ways to do that. one of them is to convince people that it it's um for their children um mm-hmm. that it's for the, that it's for the future um this is one of the reasons why I do the work that I do is because I have a fifteen year old daughter and I want her to live in a world that is better than the one that I came up in and mm-hmm. uh and um and also I believe in opportunity i I think I think one of the – unfortunately, people don't do things just because it's the just thing to do. And uh, for me, that's a good enough reason. A moral good is a good enough reason for me. But it's not for most people. They have to see what's in it for them. And so I think we need to spend some time uh, talking to people about why this is important for all of us, why this makes society um, better – for everyone. That's the only way to get that that buy in. And you know, I guess that one of the lessons from the civil rights era is that people reached out across racial and ethnic lines, across um across uh socioeconomic lines and across religious lines and were able to get people to move forward. They used allies. I think I think that's really really important. And I'm not you know, I wanna go back to I, I can't remember which person said it but um about let me see who it was. It was um uh hold on one sec. It was um is it Antipas?
0: Yes. Yes. That's, okay.
2: Mm-hmm. Um you talked about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa and I do a lot of work in South Africa and and I I think that is one of the things that we need. You know, the only way to build a relationship is to is to get it fessed up and get it out there and talk about it. And, and so I'm with you there. I, I think that's another thing that needs to happen, is people need to have real conversations and let people get out what's on their mind. I, I, and and that's hard. you got to listen to it. So those are all the things that I would learn from not only our history, but also South African history, which I think can really teach us a lot. Um, so... I don't know if that's what you're saying. I, I to hear, agree with that. <laughs> oh
6: I agree with that. Actually, uh, uh, Mary Beth, I, I would even add because um, even here in this country with the history of the faith community, and um, mm-hmm. I think that um, there's a role that the mm-hmm. faith community has to play in all of this. And uh, if we look at the urban context all over this country, the urban, the city, the metropolises, uh, we see that there is a. Um, uh, there are many churches. Politicians know it when they run for office. They go to the faith community, um, and I think uh, sociologists have even proven that the key mechanism with potential to make transformation in the um, in the cities is the is the churches, the uh, the faith communities. So, um, because they are uh, positioned in a way that I don't think I think that they have an opportunity but many pastors and leaders in the religious community don't understand what they could do, the impact that they can actually have.
0: Mm -hmm. Um,
6: And I think that if we can find ways to connect with the faith community, but also if we can um, reach the leaders to understand what role that they can play in uh, community Mm -hmm. transformation, that would be a key. In fact, Speaking to South African context, it was faith community had mm-hmm. a strong um, a strong hand in that. Um, so I, I think it's completely. an opportunity. And so the connection I see with the '60s is the issue of the faith community being uh, a key leader, and I think that's an absent piece today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, I think that a you know with the social media and all that, it it, it definitely creates a different type of landscape. Um, for um, the current crisis. And then the third thing, I think that um, in the 60s, they they can point to a law. They can point to a situation and say, this is the problem, and everybody Mm -hmm. can see it and want to change it or not. Today, we don't even all agree on what the problem is. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that the issue in Ferguson is not even the issue. And uh, that's the tipping point. That's the situation. But um, it's more complex than that, right? It's deeper than that. In fact, we can't, it's difficult to even um, articulate to the common person how that represents the problem because it has been so distorted by the framing of the situation with the other situations around Mike Brown. And so you spend a lot of time trying to unravel, I don't mean this, but I mean that, you know, no strong-arm, and if that was him in the in the corner store, that wasn't right, but it, it was also not right that he was killed. We have to do too much explaining, right? Mm-hmm. So we haven't even gotten to the real issue. The real issue is an ideological issue that plays itself out in the social context, and it undergirds everything. It, it influences the way people deal with each other, right? It influences the way that um, the, the the way that laws are made, the way that we, um, everything, right? So we, and oftentimes it, it plays itself out in political polarization. It plays itself out in social polarization and, and stereotype. But the issue itself is, un, um, it is not as clear as it was in the 1960s because we can't point to a law that's the problem.
0: Mm -hmm. We have another caller on the line. We have Eddie Journey from Indianapolis. How are you, Eddie? I'm great. Thanks for asking. What was your comment? I
7: have a a comment just that it seems to me that the panelists started to hit the issue on the head. As uh, a psychoanalytic self-psychologist and a pastor myself, I think one of the problems that we have is that many churches have lost their their prophetic edge and so they're they're not speaking about the issue of Ferguson because they have lost the church's connection to the suffering of individuals on the ground in particular I hear a lot of pastors would what often say you know well we can't be condoning violence or of the protests or speaking out because you know what would Jesus do and oftentimes <laughs> I would have to say myself well Jesus would do the same thing as a person of color who was killed at the hand of a police force, I feel that Jesus would have done the same thing that Mike Brown would have done, which was died. So as a result, I think churches have something that that needs to be said and that has to be said because what was going on in the 60s, we say uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, but we would forget that he was a reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. And it was his social gospelism that, that, that moved him in a way that said, that I've got to say something about this. So the churches really have to regain that that black prophetic edge. If anything is going to be said from their pulpits, and if anything is really going to move the hearts of the people.
0: Thank you so much. Does anybody have a response for that?
4: He
6: has well, a well, gun back I, for here.
4: <clears throat> go, go ahead. I'll, I'll wait. No, oh, please. All right. Well, I was just going to um,
6: say that this issue of social gospel is critical. Also, I'm spending a lot of time uh, researching social holiness as well, understanding what justice is and what is the prophetic voice. Um, Prophetic voice, if we're looking at it uh, as the prophets of the Old Testament, uh, I I take seriously what uh, Walter Brueggemann says in his book, Prophetic Imagination, that it's about imagine a world that God intends and to work towards that, to help people to get, from where they are to where they need to be so this is not simply isolated situation how how um that being said i'm very very um uh, 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 disturbed that um the situation with mike brown went the way it did with the grand jury uh, but i think that when, when we back up from the situation we have to see a world that changes not just a decision in mike brown case that changes we need to see our society changed on the issue of race relations, and that's the prophetic justice that we need.
0: Thank you so much.
4: Okay, Glenn Barker is here. Um, I've been in a number of these talks, and here's what I see affects much change. Um, these are big issues and I'll call it front-loading or top-loading the issues with so many woundings and so many things to resolve that uh, it can become, in my estimation, uh, too big. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think what settles in is a feeling of powerlessness uh, and this breeds apathy. Uh, It's it's too big. And the waiting for the uh, hero to come and save us. Um, We are the brothers, the leaders that we've been waiting for. Uh, This is a call, Mm -hmm. yes, this is a call for the individual. This Mm -hmm. is a call for us to hear and turn this into what we want from it. It's a call to action. So this is an opportunity to do something as an individual. The question is, what will you do? Will we be the Mm -hmm. victim that's waiting for the system to change before we do? Okay. Uh, we invoke within ourselves and join organizations and join groups that, that care enough to take action, mm-hmm. or that join up with those that just seek division. Right. Our actions, our actions and our inactions all matter here. It is crucial. What we are willing to do and what we're not willing to do will affect our futures. This is ourselves. This is our families. This is our home our community, our schools. This is what we can do. And my call is for for the men to step into that position. I, I believe women can shout out. And I believe men, it's time to hear the call. So I will bring this to this organization and to anyone who is listening. Join a men's group or a group in your area that is fearlessly taking action to out ourselves and what we are harboring in our passivity and in our rage. And move that to resolve and strength and partnership. Excellent. I celebrate mm-hmm. that. Thank you,
0: Thank um, you um, for calling, Judy.
1: I have a question for uh, Terrell. Are you still there, Terrell? Yes. Okay, Um there are many moments in our recent US history where the black male life seems to be dashed um at the hands of white policemen or or any other uh figure. And this has occurred from like Rodney King to Trayvon Martin to John Crawford, um in the state of um Ohio to Mike Brown. So do you feel like this is a national, you know, issue And also, as a race scholar, what do you think that this says about race um, relations in a supposedly post-racial world?
3: Yep. So that's a great question. And I think so much of the conversation we've had to this point already starts to address some of this. I find it so interesting when we talk about post-racial society. I don't think I've ever heard a person say, post-racial society. Everyone who says that term says supposedly post-racial society or alleged post-racial society, which reveals that we ourselves don't even believe that that's where we exist. It's not the kind of society that we have yet inherited. And so I think that's important to start, but that is false. Um, but mm-hmm. I think that, you know, Mike Brown, Trayvon Martin, John Crawford in Ohio, all of these Cases, incidents, and events um, are signals to us of where we are in terms of race relations. And I think to sum it up, there are still serious problems in this country. And I think it's an irony because the country has certainly progressed. The cer- the country has certainly moved in terms of, um, you know, uh, the geographical proximity of communities of color to each other. And I include white communities in there. We've advanced in our economic development and who can move up corporate ladders. That doesn't mean there aren't problems, but there's been undeniable progress over the course of time for women and African-Americans, mm-hmm. Latino-Americans, all, all sorts of racial and ethnic groups. But despite that progress, there's still clear evidence, these cases, just a few of them, that there are still challenges. I think as Mary Beth said earlier in the conversation that They reveal to us that there are members of our community, of our society, who do not um, believe the values and the virtues that we uphold as a society, and I think that's problematic. And we've also learned that there are individuals who we have endowed with authority, power,
6: Mm -hmm. who also
3: don't um, live out the creed of this country, that all men and women are created equal and that everyone should have access to the to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so that is a problem. The fact that we have evidence that this is the case, but we have not yet um, addressed it systematically. I think some of it gets to exactly what was talked about around leadership and the problems there. The other part that's so interesting, and that's why I think um, everyone's been talking so far about, you know, we need a leader, and the leader's not this great hero to come, but the leader is us and that mm-hmm. the time is now, and that waiting cannot continue, is that the longer we wait, and mm-hmm. the longer we sit here, and the more we talk, the more confused we get as a society. And I think it's interesting because the the media and the conversation and all of the discourse probably the conversation to the point where there are distortions in the argument. Before you know it, we're not talking about justice anymore for Mike Brown's life. We're talking about Mike Brown's criminal history. Mm-hmm. And that was never the issue. We weren't we weren't talking about that. We were talking about justice. We were talking about the officer who took his life. And um, it's interesting because it leads to a form of insanity where we don't even realize that the conversation has changed and that the questions have changed and that we've allowed ourselves to now entertain a different um, topic. And, We wonder then why things don't change. It's because we allow this evolution in conversations that convolute what we're talking about, never get us to the real issue. And before you know it, we say, well, um, let's start a national campaign for young black men who have criminal histories. That's not the point. In fact, you know, the Center for Higher Education and Enterprise, we have research projects that look at, uh, black men, uh, incarceration of black men and the role of education in preventing recidivism. And I shouldn't say it, but I'm going to say it on the radio show that we went to D.C. to find funders for this project. And I can't tell you the number of policymakers in D.C. who weren't interested in supporting a project that would prevent black and Latino young men from going to jail. They're not interested in funding mm-hmm. that. They're So that is because we know that that's a problem. We have an idea, research, about how to curb the problem, but we have leaders, authority makers in D.C. who don't want to stop the problem because there are, in their minds, societal benefits for this the perpetuation of this incarceration problem. That's a problem. We have to fix it. And it's going to get in the way of our pursuit of justice. It's going to get in the way of our
0: pursuit of community and democracy. Mm -hmm. We're actually closing in on time, so but I do want to ask Antipas and Glenn. Antipas, I know that you recently um, visited Ferguson, as did Terrell. Um, with your observations there, what do you see that uh, the faith-based community can do to help start mending the healing, the, the healing that needs to transpire there? And also, Glenn, I know that you've been talking about the Mankind Project. In what ways can, can you offer assistance? We'll begin with Antipas, however.
6: Yes, uh thank you for the question. I when I was there, I uh I felt uh a lot, it was before the grand jury's decision. Uh the folks I talked to, the atmosphere was very intense. Uh there was a lot of pain um and what I in my conversation with some of the younger people, um the conversation kept <laughs> going deeper than the case itself to the feeling of being um attacked and um the, the feeling that they need to protect themselves from the system and um and so what what on the one hand, I appreciate um and we have to acknowledge the faith community has been very present in the um during the process, and they have been great advocates for the community uh I think that one of the things that the another thing that the faith community can do is um to work as mediators. Um, we talked about the need for leadership. Um, at this point, I think advocacy has its role, um, but also mediation, mediating, be- being a voice on behalf of the community to the uh, uh, the, organ- the systems that be. Uh, and I think uh, thirdly, it's a pastoral role, a role that um, understands and walks through with the community to help them heal, and in many ways to be there in ways that the faith community may not have ever been there before. Uh, And then the other piece that i like to emphasize is if the church can be a a champion for education. I think education is not just that thing that you get to get a job, but there's something uh, I call education a virtue. And this education needs to be a holistic education. Um, And I think that the, the faith community can play a role in emphasizing education as a virtue. Uh Dr. Strayhorn said earlier that um uh that, you know some of the uh, policymakers were not interested in finding ways to uh, to uh help black and Latino boys keep them from getting into prison. Uh there was a research uh done by uh New York Theological Seminary that education Impacts recidivism rates profoundly, and it just bogs my mind how we put so much money into uh, into uh, jails and prisons and incarceration and all this, and and not enough money in education to help in uh, programs to get these guys from going into prison in the first place. If it can impact recidivism rates, it can it can also keep them from prison, and I think that the faith community has an opportunity there emphasize education, formal and informal education. And then lastly, I think our research out of the University of Virginia proves the role that the faith community can play in the family. And um, I think that if we can instill the family value and help the communities to become closer as families,
0: um, that
6: will help as well.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. And Glenn, very briefly, how can we get involved with your organization?
4: Uh, I'll make a statement and then I'll let you know how to get a hold of us. Uh, My closing remarks to the group and all our listeners will be that we cannot wait for our world to change. We need to change how resourceful we can be in the way we react to it. We can't wait for our world to change. We need to change how resourceful we are as individuals, in reaction to it. So if you want to get a hold of the Mankind Project, if you want to start a men's group in your community, in your church, in your neighborhood, where we out ourselves as men, grow ourselves as men, encourage young men to come into an initiation, that's the process of becoming a grown man and dealing with our issues, so that we're more resourceful, please get a hold of me, Glenn Barker, area code 312-243-6743. 312-243-6743. 312-243-6743. I can be reached on the Internet at org. Glenn Barker is on Facebook. mkpchicago is on Twitter. Please connect. I'm happy to be of service. Thank you for having me.
0: You're welcome. And Terrell, you had a final remark.
3: Yeah, I was going to follow up on some of the things that Antipas and others had said about um, leadership and about the faith communities. And, you know, Uh, The caller who called in from Indianapolis who made the statement about the fact that the church has been virtually silent on this is right. I want to also, though, um, call out those leaders that I do know who are using the pulpit and using the faith-based community platform as a place to speak to this issue and to promote justice. My own bishop, Bishop uh, David L. Heron, who is the uh, ecclesiastical leader for Ohio Central East, during his recent, uh, our recent fellowship service, spoke directly to this matter and, and encouraged the pastors in the state of Ohio to speak about this from the pulpit, to educate their congregations, to um, offer strategies, to build uh, interventions like summits, and to go to Ferguson, not just to be there physically as a person, but to act, to pray, to extend support to the families and the people there, and I think that's the kind of visionary leadership that's needed for this time, and there are leaders like Bishop Heron and others who are not afraid to speak out about
0: this, and I think that's exactly what we need. Excellent. Thank you. Well, Dr. Mirabeth Gassman, Dr. Terrell Strayhorn, Dr. Antipas Harris, and Mr. Glenn Barker, I want to thank you all for lending your insight, your expertise, and your knowledge discussion, and again, this discussion definitely, definitely cannot be the only one we have. I want to invite you guys back in the new future. I've sent you all an email. Please check that um, as soon as we get off this call, but I want to thank you again. Kim, do you have anything to say?
1: No, I do not um, except for just uh, thank you all for sharing your, informa- your information and your time on this powerful subject. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, you guys.
4: Thank you. Thank you thank for you. having us. Bye for now.
0: Also, Kim, I want to thank you. Thank you, um, in stepping up to the role. Again, we're going to be seeing a lot more of you. Um, I keep running my mouth, but we're going to see a lot more of you in 2014. <laughs> um, I'll go ahead and say you're going to be the co host of the show in 2014 for, um, a special episode that we're going to have, um, once a month, the Will and Kim Show. So, um, we're working on that. Look forward to that in 2015. And I'll talk to you. Actually, Kim, I'll call you tomorrow because we're going to go the live. Okay. Thank All you. All right. Thank you. Um, I want to thank my guests once again. Next week, make sure that you tune in. Um, Tomorrow marks um, World AIDS Day. Um, 1981 was the first reported case of AIDS, and here we are um, 30 years plus later. Um, My guests will include Nicholas Snow. We also have, he's a successful journalist, AIDS activist, um, and radio host. He's going to be here to talk about his book, um, Life Positive, A Journey to the Center of My Heart. Also, it was nearly three months ago at the Oprah Winfrey Life You Want event in Washington, D.C. that this young man, Malcolm M.J. Harris, stood on the stage with Oprah Winfrey herself and in front of 15,000 people. He declared that he was HIV positive. So he's going to be here to share his story and how Oprah helped him overcome the shame of being HIV positive. And he's also going to talk about how he launched the the Person Group, which is a financial services company that helps persons living with HIV secure life and health insurance. So you definitely want to tune in next week for that. Um, I want to once again thank my guests, thank my co host, and I am your host, Will Strayhorn. Let's face it, in life you're gonna be faced with many choices. But the most important choice that you will ever make is when you choose to be bold. Be beautiful. Make the choice to be. Make sure you tune in, everybody, and contact me on Let'sFaceItRadio.com. I'm looking for stories for 2015. good Let's get started now.
5: Thank you for listening to Let's Face It with Will Drayhorn and friends on the Survival Radio Network. Please be sure to visit us on the web often at Let'sFaceItRadio.com for the latest in show information, including upcoming shows, special guests, spotlight interviews, as well as exciting, innovative ways that you can be part of the show. So tune in next week for real people, real topics, real talk. Let's face it. If you.